As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian Press National Hockey writer Jonas Siegel and the Athletic TO's James Myrtle. Hi, James. We're recording this uh, from my hotel room in Washington, D.C. after game one of... Do they call it... What do they call it in the NHL? Divisional series? First round series? Is there a name for it? Uh, isn't it divisional semifinal or something stupid like that? Why don't they just... They should just call it the first round. Like, it's not... Isn't that what they do? They do uh, conference final, conference semifinal, maybe conference quarterfinal. You're asking the wrong person because I don't know. Uh, but anyway, the Leafs lost game one uh, in overtime. If you're listening to this, you probably watched the game. Uh, the podcast, Leaf Report Podcast, is brought to you by Babsox. We're going to try to do one after each game, um, and we'll see how long the series go. But let's start kind of general thoughts with the game. The Leafs got out to the 2 nothing lead. Washington slowly kind of works their way back in, takes over second half of the game. Tom Wilson Tom Wilson wins it in overtime. Like, thinking back to it, you know, less than 24 hours later, what is the big thing for you from that game? Toronto was the better team by far, I would say, in the first 20, 25 minutes of the game. And then Washington was by far the best team in the third period in the overtime. When they got the... It, it just felt like the Leafs were sitting back again in the third period. So it felt inevitable that Capitals were going to tie it up. And then in the third period, it kind of felt inevitable that Washington was going to win. The the thing that really stood out to me is that in the second half of the game, Toronto didn't 
have a lot of good chances. Like, it just didn't seem... There was one where Komarov kind of missed on, like, a spinorama in front mm-hmm. of the net. But Washington seemed to be getting much more high-level chances than the Leafs towards the end of the game. Yeah, the one that I can remember, Mitch Marner had one late in regulation, but it was, like, one of the few chances that Toronto had. And if not for Freddie Anderson at certain points in that third period, they don't get to overtime. Like, he was... It's it's weird, and we're going to... Actually, we can talk about Frederick Anderson right now because I think we should. He had a really good night, and yet you look back, and, and two of the three goals he probably should have stopped. You know, uh, the one, you know, Matt Niskanen shot, he kind of loses track of. He doesn't seem to know where the puck is, and then Justin William kind of squirts it in. And then the overtime winner, Tom Wilson, fires from not a great angle and, and beats him high. So when you look back at his night, if he plays like that, do you think. They, that gives him like a real shot to win this series, or do you look back at his night and say, you know, he gave up two bad goals? Yeah, I mean, if he's given up bad goals, then the one I really didn't like the Wilson one. I think he was not expecting the shot. Is what happened. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. There was a really great play that Wilson made to kind of jump up and grab that and shoot as fast as he did. So I, I think I can. I know that was the winning goal, obviously, but I think I can live with that mistake a little bit. The other one was I really didn't like where. He was down on top of the puck, and he just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And then he stood back up. And when you're down like that on the puck, your D thinks that you've got it covered, and that there's nothing for them to do. That they don't have to. So like, he confused everybody on the ice except Justin Williams, the the wily veteran who knew to to pounce in as soon as Anderson stood back up. So that was that seemed like kind of like a mental error, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit. He Anderson said he thought he deflected the puck way up in the air, but mm-hmm. instead it was underneath him. But he looked really sharp, like for most of the game. It's just it's it's hard to like evaluate his game because he did play so well, and yet you know when you give up two goals against you know Vezina Trophy winner, I don't know what. what. Well, that game could have been five two, you know, right. with some of the chances they had. So yeah. maybe we're being too hard on him for being critical. I can they win if he plays like that? I think the team's gonna have to be better if he's gonna be playing like that. Okay, that's a perfect segue to the Babsocks Babcock quote of the day. Uh, this was Babcock on what day would it be? Friday afternoon, uh, after an optional practice, uh, looking ahead to Game Two. I would expect them to be better, and I'd expect us to be better, and that's what happens in each series and each round as you get better and better and better. And, and you know, there's lots on the line. And the great thing about the playoffs is you, you win, so you can play again. You don't win, you go home. Real short if you don't win. So for us, it's a huge game tomorrow. It's a good opportunity for us. They're going to raise their game. We're going to raise our game, and we get a chance to see how good we can be. But we can be way better than we were. And I think that was our number one message to our team: is is we can be better. So let's be better. So obviously, Babcock thinks they can play a lot better. I think you and I both would concur. Uh, but I think Washington can probably play better. Like I don't expect Washington to come out with that kind of start. Like we we went into that series. Uh, with two kind of competing storylines. One was that this Leaf team, full of inexperience, was just going to come in potentially and look like they had nothing to lose, look loose, look carefree, or they were going to look like a team that didn't know how to play on the playoff stage. And then there was the Washington Capitals, who have all this pressure to win a cup. And it was like, well, were they going to tighten up with all that expectation? And it looked like that in the first 10, 15 minutes. Uh, but like we've talked about, the second half of the game, they took over. Do you anticipate more of that or more of maybe what we saw in the start? 
I would I would say the concern level should be pretty high for the Leafs because you know Barry Trotz was adamant after the game that Washington was going to be a lot better and that he wasn't particularly happy with how they played other than the end of the game. So I think they're going to see a more confident, organized Washington team that knows all it has to do is play the way they did in the last 25 minutes and that they'll probably be able to shut the Leafs down. So such a deep Washington team. The interesting thing, though, is so so we got the the Babcock quote of the week or day or whatever we're calling it now because we're going to be doing this more than once a week. Um, the question I wonder is who can be better on the Leafs because I think a lot of Leafs played pretty well, actually. Mm-hmm. I think Gardner played well. I think Riley played well. Um, we can debate Anderson. I'd like to see more out of Austin Matthews and his line. Uh, Nylander was good early, but then they really couldn't generate anything in the second and third period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really looks like Trotz is giving his hardest matchup to Matthews, and that he views Matthews as the biggest threat, uh, which makes sense because he's the 40-goal guy. Uh, he's going to have to find a way to break through that. Yeah, Nylander was flying early, and then the line kind of fizzled a little bit, and you mentioned the matchup against Matthews, Alsner and Carlson. It's not a, the easiest matchup for Matthews. And, and what happens, and Connor Carrick was mentioning this before game one, is when you have a series and you're playing teams night after night, they start to kind of figure you out a little bit. Like they figure out your tendencies. They're really zeroed in on you. The attention really gets great. So when you're looking ahead to, to game two, I don't know. I think what's really going to be a, a, a challenge for them is containing that depth. Because, you know, Babcock was asked after game one about the job that they did on Ovechkin. You know, Ovechkin, I think, finished with three shots. He had one after 40 minutes. That line was was held in check. But then, you know, Babcock's response was, well, yeah, but Williams had two. And now one of those is on the power play. But it's like, just because you can stop one doesn't mean you can stop two. And then you've got three and four. And granted, their third and fourth lines don't provide a lot of offense. You look at the possession numbers at the end of the game, and it was their third and fourth lines that were sinking the Leafs. And you wonder how those three pairs, as kind of lackluster as they are, hold up you know, over a series. The Leafs' record this year against good teams and against good possession teams, and their, their record against playoff teams was not very good this year. I think they won 15 of 40 games or something like that. It was, And they struggled to generate possession against good teams. And I think part of it is what you're talking about. Um, the Cadre line has been very, very effective against top lines. And the thing is, when you play a weaker team or a non-playoff team, and you shut down their top line with a cadre unit, you're probably going to win the game. But if you play a better team that can burn you with a, you know, Kuznetsov, Williams, right. you know, it's they got a lot of different weapons there. And I'm working on a story on the Capitals' blue line, and it's really interesting how deep the blue line is as well. They've got Shattenkirk on that third pair. They've got Orlov and Niskanen as a second pair. They've got Alsner and Carlson. I mean, you can give them names, but maybe they're, it doesn't really matter what name you give them because they're all very, very even. And that's a real challenge for a team like Toronto because Toronto's not even. Like, they're not evenly distributed. They have clear weakness on the third pair. They have a clear weakness uh, on the fourth line, which I think was... It's another spot that can be better. I just... I don't know. I wonder how much more that fourth line has to give. Well, so we have the numbers right here in front of us. Uh, Matt Martin played... 12 minutes, Kasperi Kapanen played 10, Brian Boyle played 12, and they were hovering between like 43% and 49%, Kapanen being on the high end. Brian Boyle was really good in the face-off circle, but, you know, you figure at some point Carrick Marincin will get exposed. And, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about the defense. 
Um, yeah, you, you're pointing out that, that Brian Boyle took a lot of defensive zone draws. Uh, but let's talk about the defense. You know, no Nikita Zaitsev. He's not going to play game two. Uh, they went with Gardner, Polak, Riley, Hunwick, and they basically split, for the most part, the matchup against Ovechkin with a slight preference towards Gardner and Polak. Um, what did you think of, of the way the defense played? Well, I mean, Ovechkin didn't do a lot in the game, as you mentioned. Backstrom had one glorious chance in the third period, but I didn't think was super, super dangerous. Mm-hmm. They have to be happy with that. Yep. You know, the, you can, if you can play Matt Hunwick over 26 minutes in a game against the best team in the league, and he plays as well as he did, I think you got to be happy with that. And I don't know what's gotten into Hunwick and Polak, but like this is the best we, hockey we have seen them play since they've been with the Leafs. It's been two years mm-hmm. And they've been kind of whipping boys, and you know, you and I have been part of criticizing them. I mean, their analytics and, and that hadn't been good. But it's just the last twenty or thirty games that they've really come around. And if they hadn't, I don't know where the Leafs would be right now. So it's it's interesting that those two veteran guys have somehow found a way, or maybe the Leafs have found a way that to use it more effectively. Or it's 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 pretty interesting. I. I thought the D was okay. Uh, that's a really tough spot for Marincin to go into. I was a bit surprised they played Marincin as much as they did. I was surprised they played the fourth line as much as they did. Like I wonder if, I wonder if they maybe dial that back a little bit because you could see in the way that Trotz was matching the forward lines that he was trying to give some get some of his offensive players out against the Boyle and Martin line and do mm-hmm. some damage, and they got the winning goal with that fourth line out there. So Marincin played just under fourteen minutes. I'm not sure how much less he can play. Like, So you look at their defense. Gardner played 26. Polak played 24. Riley played 24. And Hunwick played 26. Like That's that's about max what you can give those guys. Um, I think the Hunwick thing is really interesting. And you wrote about this before the game. I wrote about it after kind of taking your lead. His season like turned around um, for some reason. And, and I, try, I asked him about it, tried to figure it out. He wasn't quite sure what happened. He got hammered game one against Ottawa. He said he didn't suffer a concussion. He said he's had concussions before. But for whatever reason, first half, him and Polak were not good. Second half, him and Polak were pretty good. And you mentioned, and we talk about it a lot watching the games, Babcock and I guess it's DJ Smith, they kind of do this thing where they're mixing and matching their defense for certain matchups, certain face-offs. You know, if it's a defensive zone face-off, they might have Polak take an extra shift. You know what I mean? Like, they just do different things, and I wonder if that's part of what's made guys like Hunwick and, and Polak more effective. I went back and watched that hit in the very the very first game of the season, first period. Chris Neal comes in. Have you, have you watched that again yeah. recently? It's, it's like it's one of he the most punishing him. hits of the whole year in the NHL. He crushes him, and he goes head first. He, he like kind of falls sideways head first right into the boards. Like, it's amazing that these guys... He was back the next game. He played three days later against Boston. But he left that game. He was all bloody. He was kind of a mess. And then Hunnewick just was not very effective for about 25 or 30 games. So, I mean, we've seen it before. I mean, that happened with John Michael Lyles. He got a concussion. He came back, and he was not the same player. He was having, like, a career year the first 30 games. Paul Gostad in Buffalo just absolutely destroyed him. And John Michael Lyles is not a big guy. Um... And then he just he got the contract extension. I think when he came back, and he was just couldn't play. He, yeah. he really struggled. So I don't know if that's what happened with Hunwick or not. But the Leafs are lucky that he's been a different player the last you know half season. 
Well, and what's big with him is, like, he took a lot of heat, obviously, last year. He was playing in a role that he's not good enough to play. Like, they, I'm sure if you got Mike Babcock um, telling the truth, he would tell you, like, Polak, and anybody knows this, Polak, or Hunwick is not supposed to be on your top pair. If Hunwick is on your top pair, you're not good enough. He was in a more suitable role this year, especially in the second half on your third pair, right? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, that's... That's what he's good enough to do. He's not the biggest guy. He's not the most skilled guy. But he's kind of like that safe, dependable guy. He skates well. He moves the puck. Like, he can be okay if you put him in the right situation. Yeah, but here they are in the playoffs against the best right. team in the league. And if it's not Hunwick on the top pair, then it's Polak. And probably neither one of those guys should be in that situation. So, you know, it's I look at what they've got with the Marlies, too. And they don't really have an answer coming. I mean, I think Dermott could be a third-pair guy on left defense behind Riley and Gardner next year, but does that mean you don't bring Hunwick back? Maybe you do and you want that depth. You know, and their right side is, it sounds like they're going to sign Zaitsev for a $10 billion year contract or whatever. He's going to be signed until he's 84 years old and he's he's the GM. You know, I I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, They're in tough. They're in really tough without Zaitsev. Well, and Okay, so we don't we we don't know what his status is. They're not saying basically anything. They're he was not in saying the press box. he was in the press box watching the game alongside us. They're not saying if he has a concussion. It looks we, we suspect he has a concussion or something. Um, when he returns is kind of a mystery. That's the thing. Like if 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 they don't get him back and there's no clear indication of when he's coming back, he's not going to play Saturday. Monday, you know, game three seems unlikely. I guess we'll see. Uh, but that makes it a really big challenge for them to kind of hold on with the defense that they have. The thing that I found interesting, uh, you know, if he does have a concussion, he was up in the press box with us. There's, It's loud, really loud in that building. There's a lot of lights flashing, and they had, they had these, like, glow stick things they gave the crowd, and it was all... Like, he, when I had my concussion, I would never have wanted to be there looking at that. And he was on his phone. It looked like quite a bit in the press box. And I remember I couldn't use my phone for a few days after I had a concussion. So, I don't know. I mean, we're just, we're guessing. But maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's, like, he's, he's not he's not at home in a dark room or anything like that. Well, I'm not, I hate to say this, but, like, I'm not an expert. Like, I hate when people say that. No shit, I'm not an expert. <laughs> but... Uh, don't all concussions have kind of different different symptoms? Yeah. They're all varying degrees. Like concu- who knows? Like the point is, they've left this door open by not saying what it is. And right. listen, I would probably do the same thing, but we have to speculate, uh, given that we don't know. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, some of their young players. That was kind of one of the underlying storylines going in. They had nine guys debut. Um, I was surprised that they looked at at ease as they did in the first. Uh, like we mentioned, Neilander flying around, Marner was good. Um, were you surprised that it didn't seem to kind of bother them the stage of the playoffs? No, not really. I mean, they kind of played the way they did during the season, didn't they? I mean, we yeah. saw, you know, Neilander was so good down the stretch. I thought Marner that was his best game in quite a long time. I think that the illness that he had and the the injury that he had, which we never found out what it was. That really seemed to slow Marner down, and that th- th- what surprised me was the JVR Bozak Marner line. You could argue was their best line. You look at them, how many minutes that Bozak played, and the the guys on the team today in the dressing room were joking about how many hits did Bozak have? Seven. Bozak had seven hits. So uh, who was it? 
was it JVR said he doubled his career high or something like that in that in one game, and Cadre uh, said he looked at it and he thought it was a typo on the game sheet when it said it, that Bozak had seven hits, but Bozak played really well. I mean, he had some really good rushes and he created some chances. JVR had seven shots on goal. Marner was probably. I think he was probably the Leafs' most dangerous player offensively. So if they can get that line, which I kind of think of as the Leafs' third line, to really do some damage, that's important because we're talking about depth. And the Matthews line really struggled to generate offense. Uh, the Kadri line was great defensively, but I don't think they generated a ton of offense. No. So a lot of it was on, on the Bozak line, and they, they might need that, that unit to produce really all series. Right, well, and if we're going to talk about like that, that Washington has all these layers of depth that you kind of have to defend against, it's the same thing, conversely, to a different degree for Washington in defending Toronto. Do you know what I mean? Like, they have to be able to, to shut down Matthews, and they have to be able to shut down, you know, Neilanders on the same line, but then they have to shut down the Marner line, and then they have to kind of slow Kadri. And what Kadri's been really good at, that line's been really good at, is they don't just, like, I think we've been stuck in the past a little bit with how we think of, like, who are good defensive players and good defensive lines. Kadri's line is good defensively because they don't have to play in their own zone all the time. Like, they can generate offense. Kadri had 30 goals and 60 points while basically going against top lines all season. Um, so that, I think, is interesting. And, and you and I both agreed that maybe the experience thing doesn't matter. Like, maybe it matters as a series goes along. Uh, that's one of the things that Van Riemsdyk told me is, like, you, you learn how to handle ups and downs of a series from going through it so he learned you know from going down 3-0 with philly and then coming back and like cup finals and you know i just think that element is where it might matter more and maybe as the series goes on we'll see washington's experience kind of take hold what i was just going to say it was interesting who barry trotz views as the biggest threat on the leafs because what you're talking about is the Leafs scoring depth where they've got Kadri on one line, they've got JVR Bozak Marner on another line, and those guys all had over 50 points this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they've got obviously Matthews was tied for second in scoring in the league. You look at he gave his top defensive D pair, uh, Alsner and Carlson, to Matthews. That's the hard match that the Capitals looked for. But then the second best D pair that they've got defensively is uh, Orlov Niskanen. And he gave uh, Orlov Niskanen to the the Bozak JVR Bozak Marner line. Mm-hmm. So it's like the threat that Trotz worries about the most is Austin Matthews number one, mm-hmm. regardless of who he's playing with, and, and I guess Neilander too, obviously. But number two is uh, is is Marner. So it's interesting that they've kind of and, and JVR and whatever. And the Orpic Shattenkirk is kind of the third D pair in that they try and use it against sheltered lines. Yep. He used Orpic Shattenkirk a lot against Toronto's fourth line. And that can be dangerous because Shattenkirk's such a good offensive player that he can really find openings when he's playing against Matt Martin, for example. And perhaps it's no surprise that he finished with nine shots. Right. So that's a really good point. Like, And, and put yourself in a, in a coach's shoes. If you were matching up against the Leafs, you'd say the number one threat I have to slow down is Matthews. The number two threat is, is Marner. And then obviously I'm worried about Kadri to a lesser degree, but like he would still scare me. Um, what? There was no hard match on the Cadre line at all. Like they seem to be yeah. up against everybody. That's I talked to Connor Brown about that, and and I was talking about the defensemen they were playing against, and they didn't really have a set defense pair that they were had to worry about. Their biggest concern was they were getting out there against Backstrom and Ovechkin. Hmm. Let's uh, look at Morgan Riley, just because it's kind of top of mind. Babcock said after 
game one that he thought that was the best game that Riley had in some time, maybe all year. I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but Riley plays about 24 minutes, plays with Honwick, uh, plays pretty well. He is coming off like a weird year. Um, he was on their top pair for most of the year with Zaitsev. Early March, they get hammered in Florida, and then Babcock shifts around his pairs. He moves Riley onto the second pair. He moves Gardner up to play with Zaitsev. Suddenly, that's essentially their top pair that's going against top lines. Um, first, let me ask you, like, what did you make of Riley's year? Like, what did you learn, I guess, about his season? In some ways, he had a tough year. Yeah. You know, they... Tyler Dello did a really good piece on Morgan Riley. It was one of the, actually the most popular things we've had at the Athletic in the last six weeks. I encourage people to to go check it out. Um, Tyler Dello's obviously worked for NHL teams is a really smart analytics guy, and he basically wrote the piece was called "In Defense of Morgan Riley as a Number One Defenseman," and he said that Riley was getting the toughest matchups essentially of any defenseman in the entire NHL because Babcock is so good at hard matching that he had Riley out there all the time. So that makes it hard, I think, to gauge his results because his results were not that good. Like, frankly, like we hate plus minus, but the plus minus meshed with Corsi and possession and all, and all of that, of scoring chances against. Riley had a tough year in those departments. So the question is were the matchups so hard? Like, you'd like to see if you're an elite player, you can overcome really, really tough matchups. Duncan Keith and, and players like that, they can play against the most difficult matchups and still produce good results. Mm-hmm. That's not what we saw from Riley this year. Isn't that what makes an elite defenseman elite defenseman? Like, is they can go against really good players and still thrive, isn't it? But it, I guess the question is, is that just like the top 10 or 12 defensemen in the world? And yeah. there are not very many of those guys. Sure. And that when we talk about quote-unquote number one defenseman, we're talking about the top 30 and maybe Riley's just not one of the top 15. Maybe he's 30th or maybe he's 40th. Or I think Riley's very, very talented on the breakout. I think he's very good offensively. I thought it was interesting when that, um, that, that thing that Ryan Stimson did that was categorizing what different players are, he categorized Riley as a, a shooter, was, was his kind of player type. And I think that makes sense. You know, he's not an all-around D, I don't think, at least not yet. He's more of a offensive weapon, and you know the Leafs when they've really had success here down the stretch the last 20, 25 games, it's been Jake Gardner that has taken a lot of the tough matchups, and I think that that's really interesting going forward if that's going to be a, a long term proposition. You and I were debating who the top pair was in that game one. You know they both played a ton of minutes, uh, but it did look like they tried to give uh, Gardner and Polak out there against. Um, Ovechkin a little bit more than than Riley Hunwick. Mm-hmm. Well, see, you mentioned like he's not an all-around D-man yet. I think that's what Babcock is trying to make him into. Like, I think there's a reason when he comes in and basically says you're not playing power play, and and says you're going to go against top lines and you're going to kill penalties because I'm guessing he figures that other stuff like I can I can lop on later. Like, I need to make sure that you can be a good defensive defenseman, you know, so you can be eventually a guy who can play in every situation. Like, I was I was asking you for your thoughts when I was putting together uh, my awards ballot. And, you know, you, you go through and you look at how certain defensemen are used. Some guys don't kill penalties. Some guys, you know, you know what I mean? Like, some guys, like Dougie Hamilton was an interesting guy when you looked at him. 
he plays like just under 20 minutes a game. You know, he, he plays a lot. He plays on the top pair, but he's used differently than, say, Duncan Keith, who's playing 26 a game. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about Riley, but he obviously has really good skills. You know what I mean? Like, you mentioned how he rushed the buck out. Like, not a lot of guys can do that. And we have to mention, too, that he had that injury, a high ankle sprain, and he missed only right. six games. I mean, he probably should have missed more time than that. And he was playing through that. He, he That ankle was very heavily taped up, you know, for a long, long time after that when he was playing through it. And it affected his mobility. And you could see in his his analytics that there was a dip there when he came back that it will, you know, was noticeable. It would be so interesting when we have even more in-depth data and information I think we'll be able to see very clearly when there are performance dips that are related to fatigue or, or whatever. You know, it's... We just... The information we have right now is pretty basic. Teams probably have it. Yeah. But... All right. Uh, is there anything else we need to talk about um, before we close off and go look around Washington? Anything else on your mind that you feel needs to be addressed? Maybe we're just not getting it in Washington. I just... It doesn't feel like there's a lot of buzz around this series or something. Like, I think if they would have played Ottawa or Boston, there would have been a different energy around it. This series kind of feels like the fan base just feels like, okay, we made the playoffs, that's great, but it's over. You mean the Toronto fan base? Uh, Yeah. Well, because I I don't think you're going against the best team in the league. And I, I think the expectations would be different if they were playing Ottawa. Like, I think people would be expecting them to beat Ottawa. Uh-huh. I mean, you and I probably, if that, if they played Ottawa, I would have picked Toronto probably in six or seven games. Uh-huh. Wouldn't you? I would say six, yeah. They're a better team than Ottawa. But, like, I think if we were covering that series right now, there would be this crazy energy around it every day. I just, just from judging on social media and, like, our site and, like, how much traction stuff's getting and... I don't know. Like, I think the Leafs have to come back. I think they need to win game two or win game three overwhelmingly. or so, Like, something has to happen to really spark this series into... The fan base is kind of expecting them to lose in four or five games. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the the first 20 minutes of game one, it's like, okay, maybe something different's going to happen here. And then they, they gave it back. Well, and that's why there was kind of this storyline after that they missed an opportunity. And, yeah. like, the, the thing is, they kind of came out of that game feeling like at least they could play with Washington. Like, they didn't get stomped. But I was saying to you on the walk back from the rink, like, I could see in game two Washington just coming out and blowing the doors off. But, you know, Babcock said they have to find a way to get one. You know, they can't come out of this down 2-0. And yet, this is advice that, that Chris Pronger passed on to Van Riemsdyk, and he recalled it to me. You're supposed to lose the first two games on the road. Like, the home team is supposed to win their games. So, but... If they go down to nothing, I think we'd both agree that it's probably over. So, it's just weird to cover the Leafs. I've only covered the Leafs in the playoffs really twice, where I'm at every game, and like the energy around that Boston series was a lot different than around this. Like this series just seems like it doesn't matter that much because the Leafs like aren't expected to win, and it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? It totally makes sense, and it's funny when you think back to... I think it's because the the two teams are very different in, in how you look at them. That Leaf team, you were looking at it like it was like a flash in the pan. And like, and if they weren't going to get by Boston, like what, it, what was this all about? Like, what were they trying to do? 
Whereas you look at this Leaf team and you kind of just look at them, this is just the start. Like, we're not expecting them to win a cup this year. We're expecting them to gain some experience. And then next year is kind of when you start looking at them as a potential cup team. So I think that's why. I think it's a really good point uh, you're making. So we will uh, try to come back and, and do something. What time do you fly on Sunday? 11. Uh, so Sunday. So maybe we'll do something after game three. What time is your flight? My flight's at 3 o'clock on Sunday, so I can do it. Maybe you can. We'll see. So we'll try to be back after Game 2, if not after Game 3. The podcast is always brought to you by Babsocks. Visit babsocks.ca. Stay tuned for Game 2. Thanks for tuning in to The Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter at Jonas Siegel and at Murdoch.